1: everybody, this is Doc Bryan, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about life's trials, tribulations, tests, and triumphs, and the success that, that we can have in life despite other problems that we may have. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Marina Franklin. Thank you for being with us, Marina.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to our, our talk here, and uh uh, this is the first podcast that I've done here by Zoom. So I appreciate you being willing yeah. to do it this way uh, for us. And, uh, and so you, where are you? Do you live here in, in New York or where do you reside? Yes. Okay. Where are you from originally?
0: I'm originally from Chicago.
1: Okay. Tell me just a little bit about your childhood growing up, the family dynamic, that sort of thing.
0: So I grew up in Highland Park, Illinois, till I was about eight years old. Uh, my mom and my dad divorced at, when I was eight. So she moved to the south side of Chicago back into her parents' home. And then after she reestablished her own, I guess, money and her life, she moved to the, the south suburbs, which was the Park Forest, Richland Park, Homewood, Flossmoor. She moved a lot. So there's three areas within that. South suburb that she moved to based on who she was dating, kind of. like. So she dated uh, my sister's father and then she had my sister, Ashley, and then she moved with him and then they broke up and then she moved away from him back into her apartment. And now she lives in North Carolina with the man that she's been married to for the longest. And my dad, who is now past... But my dad lived downtown Chicago during that time where she was moving, and he lived on Clark and Diversity, a very nice area. He was a businessman uh, and owned his own company, Travel Agency.
1: Okay, so so early on, you were still able to uh, see both parents then and have, have a relationship with both of them, or was there a bit of a, uh, a disconnect there?
0: There was a disconnect at eight. My dad disappeared. Okay. Uh, he lost his company. That's why we moved from Highland Park, if you it's like where they take Ferris Bueller's day off. okay. It's a very it's one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in America. It's like where like Rumsfield went to school at New Trier, you know. So he lost his company and um, hid. We didn't see him for a long time. Then uh, rediscovered him again when I was thirteen when my mom was out in the suburbs initially before she met someone else, he tried to you know, -come, come back into our lives. So he was there for a brief moment and that didn't work out, I guess. I didn't really understand what was going on. And then, yeah, and then he was gone again. He came back again when I was about probably a year later, but it was more like through my grandmother where he would have us stay with my grandmother and then he would visit us and take us out and do the work that he was supposed to do really. As a dad.
1: And and so you had a younger half sister then? Is I understand right?
0: Oh boy. Okay. So here we go. Now that's a fun. This is a fun. (laughs) This is a fun time right here. I had a very fun dad. That's what I say. So I had one whole sister. She's passed since. I have an older half sister. So my dad has four kids: me, Naila, John. Leah, Ashley, five kids, including me. Leah is my oldest half-sister by six months, which means we're like Irish twins, but not Irish. Like I said, I had a fun dad. (laughs) I do the family tree by the mothers. Jermaine, my mom is Maria, and Shalita. My mother has me, Naila, and Ashley. That was with her, her next marriage. And then Shalita... With my dad, had two kids, Ash, another Ashley. Told you it was gonna be fun, <laughs> and John Ashton. So I have two sisters named Ashley, one for my dad, one for my mom.
1: Okay. <laughs> so, so growing up, there wasn't a whole lot of stability. I guess would would be a, a fair statement.
0: I wouldn't say that. Okay. Uh, I I don't define it like that, but okay. yeah, I get what you mean.
1: But like from moving. Being in the same place at one time, stability. A lot of
0: moving, lot right, lot okay. of moving around.
1: Right. Yeah. So, did you notice in at some point in your childhood that this wasn't very comfortable, and that you had to reacclimate to where you were going? Because I'm just assuming you had to change schools in moving. Was that difficult to try to? to get back into social cir- circles?
0: That's why I'm a comic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was, I call myself the chameleon. Actually, I just realized, cause I'm, I'm approaching 50. That part of what was that upbringing is why I tend to impersonate people. I tend to pick up people's rhythms, patterns, speech patterns. I sometimes even become people for a while. But when I was, when I left Highland park, I was, you could say white. And then when we moved to the south side of Chicago, I was confused because I wasn't black. So I had to be black and I tried to act black and that wasn't good. It was bad the way I, cause it was like a white girl trying to be black. Then when we moved out to the south suburbs, that was the utopia of black and white relationships and equality as far as income. So I was just weird to everyone cause I was trying to be black and they were like, just be you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was it was a lot of like uh, adjusting and, yeah, kids tend to bully you when you're new. I was always the new kid, but I always found a way to make people laugh. And so I always found a way to, like, make them like me. I had to make them like me where I was or else. Yeah.
1: So you in a sense, you used your comedic ability to gain friends. And to gain trust in some area.
0: Sure. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time. I look back at it, and I know that's what it was. And sometimes I was just funny and didn't know I was funny. I mean, part of it was like being just who I was. I think so. I've done therapy for years. So my therapist would say most people wouldn't handle situations the way you did, but I just tended to ad- adjust. Uh, even in Highland Park, which was, you know, it was predominantly a white neighborhood you know, racism was going on. It was the 70s. I had to, at times, not all the time, because my school, they were used to me. It wasn't a lot of racism there. But when I was in new situations like camp and stuff like that, there was a lot. So I used to make the camp counselor laugh Mm. and make her my friend. So I found a way.
1: So you always found a strong person to try to be your attachment to to help you through?
0: No, I don't think that's exactly, I didn't find a strong person in each situation. In camp, it was just the person that liked me. I wouldn't say she was necessarily a strong person. I would just say she was into my comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I wouldn't describe everyone. Everyone in those situations were not, it wasn't like there was a strong person here. Sometimes it was just like whoever was into me. Whoever got it.
1: So you made sure to attach to the person who could see you for who you were. Yes. Or or the, or the ones or, that or, found you funny yeah. and uh, and appreciated that that side of you. Yeah. So you, you yes. said you do an, in, impressions. What, w- in your opinion, who is your best imp- impression that you can do?
0: Oh, my best impression. It depends on who I'm around at the time. I usually do. I do. My ex-boyfriend, Keith Robinson, who's a comedian a lot, because he always says things like he's inside my head a lot. So I oftentimes impersonate him going, Marina needs to shut her trap. Or, you know, he'll say something like, ah, oh, shut it. He goes, that absolutely stinks. <laughs> but it just depends on who. Like I used to impersonate Bill Burr a lot because Bill Burr and I used to get into fights all the time. So Bill Burr would always say, Jesus Christ, you know what? Uh, uh, Marina, you know? Did you have to go there? In high school, I used to impersonate my friends. One of my, I had two black friends that also spoke their type of white girls. <laughs> There's different types. <laughs> so I had one that uses, her name was Celia. And she was like, be like, let's just like have a good time. Like, it's not even like <laughs> serious, like whatever. Like, I don't know why you're hanging out with those girls when you hang out with like me. So I used to do her all the time and I ran into her 25 years later and it happened to be on the same weekend that I had just finished impersonating her to my other friends. And they told her, which I was like, no, don't tell her. And they were like, they told her, she goes, oh yeah, she used to impersonate me all the time.
1: (laughs) Well, did uh, impersonating people, did did that kind of help you to kind of put yourself in in a role that that they played? Was it was it a coping mechanism or was it something that you just were able to do and and enjoyed doing? I
0: think both, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times you're in situations where if you want people to like you, if you're like them, then they will, right? Right. So that's coping. Cause I would say like on the south side of Chicago, I used to impersonate my uncle. So I was doing like, I thought like doing the pimp walk, I don't know why I thought that was being more black, but I used to do like this little like pimp walk. And I don't even know why they called it a pimp walk. That's horrible now that I think about it. But it's like, you know, in stir crazy when Richard Prime, they're like, yeah, I'm bad. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like I looked kind of like that. And um, my Uncle John used to always correct my proper English and make it slang. Because I was so proper speaking, I used to say "you all" instead of "y'all." It was very proper. I'm no longer like that, but so he would say, "It's not you all; it's y'all. It's not are not; it's ain't." So, or I, it's not all right; it's I. So I used to always say I. I to this day I go I. That was just coping, and then I also enjoyed it.
1: Right in this trying to, would you say that you were trying to fit in or you were trying to gain friends?
0: I don't know if I was trying to gain friends as much as I was trying to just be, like, have peace of mind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I I was never seeking friends' friends. Like, I never do that. But I was always like, just wanted people to leave me alone Mm -hmm. and be okay. So I tend to be an entertainer though, so I liked an audience.
1: So, it wasn't necessarily about having friends, but the ability to feel like you belonged in a a group of people.
0: Or just like, see, to belong means you want to belong. I didn't want to I wanted just people to leave me alone.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: So that's not really like belonging. I don't know if I wanted to like belong. I just wanted either you came or you didn't, you know, but I definitely wanted people to not hit me.
1: Right. So, what was the first time that you really realized that you were funny?
0: Yeah, it did, I didn't realize it. I mean, I will. I. I. When I look back, I remember that camp counselor laughing so hard and enjoying it. Once she laughed, it was a rhythm. I could make her laugh harder if I keep going with the joke. And I remember doing that as a kid. I remember her falling on the grass, holding her stomach, and laughing so hard and enjoying that. And I was probably eight years old.
1: Okay. Did that give you a sense of enjoyment or did it give you a sense of peace and comfort?
0: That was enjoyment.
1: Enjoyment. Okay, good. So now progressing on, you know, into high school or I don't know if you went to college or not in a collegiate area. Tell me a little bit about life and and that that part of, of your experience and how it was to grow up in an America where there was a lot of tension within race and how did that affect uh, you're already, you know, having to move around and try to find, you know, new people or trying to feel like, I don't want to use the word belong, but, but to feel like you were there in the moment, how did that affect you?
0: I did, not you know, I, Never looked at like I was never angry at white people, and I was never, I would say, I probably hung out with them more. That but when I went to college, only because they seemed to accept me a little bit more, uh, they were nicer <laughs> about it. The ones that did like me, I never had like a core group of black friends, and I try, I did try to find that in high school. Or no, they found me, that's how it happened, that's what happened. They were like, we like her. And then I was like, Oh, good. I've never had a core group of black girlfriends. And then we, so when I went to college, I went to university of Illinois for the first time ever. I was actually segregated into a dorm floor that was all black. And at the time I didn't think about it. I just realized it lately, but I realized it was the first time that I had a core group of black girlfriends and it was new for me in a sense that there was a difference like there was a cultural difference in friendship and I was just learning. And so I would try to, my speech was different. I was talking like them. And then I had a friend who is my best friend to this day. Her name is, happens to be ISIS. Uh, my best friend, not a religion. I, I know f- a
1: girl named ISIS. So yeah, oh, She's just a, a wonderful person and very funny and, and, and a lot of fun to be around.
0: So my, Best friend Isis saw me at what was called Soul Food Night in college, and she said Marina doesn't talk like that. She was just now meeting me, and she called me out in front of my my girlfriends. She said Marina is trying to talk black, and she doesn't talk like that. And it exposed me. I was so upset. That was probably the way it affected me. And I think actually, also, I wasn't great at the friendship with those girls my black my new black girlfriends in college there was something that happened where we fought and then i had to leave the floor i just was like i can't do this and i was i wasn't sure at that time what that meant i didn't know exactly and then i remember my boyfriend at the time he's like you just you're not used to hanging out with girls like that i don't know if it was those specific girls if it was because i wasn't used to having culturally a group of black friends that i met that were new you know because in high school my girlfriends that were black that adopted me, they found me, we're still friends to this day. You know, they accepted me for who I was. These girls were new to me and I was trying to be like them in a way and that didn't work out. That, that had its effect, but like racially, like overall, I would say I wasn't like, I'm just going to hang out with these people. Or I'm just, gonna, I just was okay. I was okay with things. I came out okay. I mean, some people who come from my experience would probably be, they probably either would not like white people or I don't know, actually. I, I don't, I would worry about those people. <laughs> <laughs> I did okay. So, I did all right.
1: So, if I, I understand correctly, it was when someone befriended you, that was a friendship that lasted and was nurturing. But when you would reach into a group of friends, that was where it was. Uh, dysfunction, or it just didn't work out.
0: Yeah, and I I didn't reach it. It was mostly like they put me at U of I. They put me on that dorm floor. They forced us into a cultural situation. They segregated us. And my roommate was one of the black girls from high school that talked white. And she was like, she's like, she talked more like, oh my god, hey, oh, 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 oh. hi, Marina. It's okay. All right. So we were, we were friends, always friends. So, but she accepted me.
1: I wish that our listeners would be able to see your, your facial expressions <laughs> and, and jovialness that, that you have going on there it is uh, I, I would say it's entertaining, but it, it also is authentic. I, 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 feel the personality coming out in that, in that era with people sometimes that are good at impersonating Sometimes when they were younger, they really struggled with identity and who they were and where they were to fit in. Did you have any struggles like that?
0: Well, when I was on the south side of Chicago at that one school, yeah, that was hard. That was difficult because I just didn't know. I was young, I was nine years old. And for the first time, I was like, I'm so happy to be around people that look like me. That's all I knew. I had always been around, you know, white kids. And I was always, I would say, when I was in Highland Park, there was that point where you just worry about, you know, do I look, is this nose okay? Is, you know, all these things. And then I had a mother who would always instilling in me that it, these things are, don't matter. And then when I went to the south side of Chicago and I, I was just really confused. Cause I was like, oh, finally I get black people who look like me, I could play. And um, they were like, you sound funny. That's what I would get. You sound funny. And you don't know how to jump double dutch. (laughs) I was like, I got to learn double dutch. So I trained on my block. It was a mission. I was like Rocky. I was like, I'm going to get this double dutch down. I don't care what happens. And I did.
1: I was about to say, and I assume that you did.
0: Oh, yeah. They told me, they said, start. (laughs) They said, you're going to start wide legged. (laughs) 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 And then your legs are going to close up and you're going to be jumping fine. I was like, all right. So I trained on my block because on my block, the kids there accepted me. They, you know, they were just like, they knew my grandfather. They knew my whole family. So everyone was like, that's, you know, Mr. Merrill's granddaughter. And they just didn't, they didn't even say things like you sound funny or anything like that. But I was like, I need to learn double Dutch. You guys got to help me so I could go to school. Because when I would turn, they would always say, she turns funny. She's not turning. She's double handed. And I was like, double, what does that mean? And that means when the rhythm of the double dutch sounds like it's supposed to sound, but it does sound like t-t-t-t-t-t. so that means that no one can jump, so I couldn't play.
1: I'm glad that you explained that because I had no idea <laughs> what that meant. So in in UI, uh what was what was your major?
0: Psychology. Psychology,
1: um, I'm sorry. <laughs> it,
0: <laughs> well, I so, wanted to major in theater. Uh-huh. But my dad would not let me because he said, well, it was also like there wasn't really a strong theater program at U of I. My dad was like, you know, you're going to go to U of I. You need to get a really strong education. Can't be in theater. So I I, may, I chose psychology, which was a close. That felt like a close second.
1: So what was your end goal there with with that degree?
0: I have no clue. I don't know. I'll tell you what, it was only to be in school because that's what they said I needed to do. And I felt like if you didn't go to school, you weren't going to make money eventually. So I was like, if I go to college and I get a degree, at least when you go and apply for a job, they can see you have an education. That's what I was taught. That's what I was told. That's what I thought. But then what happened was I still did theater. I still did. uh, When I was at University of Illinois, I performed at the uh during black history month everyone knew me as the girl who did these great monologues for black history month it would be like 1200 people in the audience my dad came to see one of the shows i did this performance called you know the invisible man by ralph ellison i am an invisible man no i am not a spook like those who haunted edgar i was doing angry black pieces but i wasn't that angry I'm so good. I just wanted them. They liked me and they had no idea. I wasn't really that angry. And then I graduated. And at that point, my dad let it go. I went to Syracuse to get my master's in fine arts. Based on the teacher that I had at University of Illinois, she referred me to Syracuse. And uh, Christine Hunter, she was the best acting teacher ever. I still talk to her to this day. And she told me, great, to go there.
1: So you then did get to go... And and pursue a career of training in acting.
0: Yeah, I sure did.
1: You know, I, I do think that that it's important to point out, and and I have I have mentioned this on other podcasts. Not everybody is fit for college. College isn't meant for everybody. And I think that while we we should have aspirations and dreams and goals, that there are things that we should be just as proud of, such as trade school or starting our own business as an entrepreneur and making it ourself without having to have a piece of paper that makes us feel validated in some kind of way. It seems like high schools train kids to go to college and not how to live in the real world.
0: Oh, Amen, brother.
1: I think it's important for us to, to notate that. However, Going into acting uh, with, with just the few uh, people that I know, uh, they would tell me it is imperative to have a good acting teacher or some, a theater teacher that really shows you what to do, because I think a lot of people take for granted exactly the art of acting.
0: I agree. I mean, I really studied. I mean, we ha- I had Syracuse had, at the time that I was there, I have a hard time thinking of, of years. You can, psych, you can <laughs> analyze that if you want. But I was at Syracuse in 93. Jeez. And so to 96. Yeah. And so at that time, all of the main actors from New York City on Broadway were going to Syracuse. That's why I went there. Because the teacher who I met at U of I said, you will get the best training and you'll also be around the best actors and the artistic director there is incredible. You should be there while he's there. And it was true. Now the master's program at Syracuse was a defunct program it no longer exists because they didn't, I think they was just like a money grab for them. I don't know what they were doing, but the thing, it didn't matter. The thing is, is the class structures, Arthur Storch theater, Arthur Storch originated from method acting the actor studio, and he was still alive when I was there, and I would watch him work in the actor studio, work with students, and there's a real technique to this, and I actually taught theater, too. They had, you know, you get, like, your, you get your intro to acting, where they give a class, so you can, you know, support your, pay for your student loans, and all that, and pay for class, so I taught intro to acting, and I had, like, every year, I had, like, a number of students each semester.
1: So, what, uh, in your life up to this point in college, would you say was the thing that affected you negatively the most or was the most traumatic up to this point in your life?
0: Well, one thing I, I, I probably won't discuss here because okay. I just won't do it. Sure, but sure. My sister, I'll say it, but I won't go into it because uh, it's very, tr- it's big trauma. But I will say uh, my sister was murdered. Uh, my sister, Naila. And that happened when I was at when I w- had moved to New York after college, way after. Uh, so that was probably the most traumatic experience I had. Uh, also, I think you know, I, I think that pretty much sums it up. So
1: yes, uh, I, and I, then
0: now I have breast. I had breast cancer last. Let's talk. Well, we could talk about the breast cancer.
1: I'm so sorry.
0: <laughs> no, I'm fine though. I'm good. I'm, I don't mean to laugh about it. It's just you know, I am a comic. Well, but I know. I talk about it on stage and. So yeah, but I would say my sister's death was more tragic and traumatic.
1: I I I can't even imagine. Uh and 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 I I would say this not selfishly, but I I hope I never would have to imagine or be in that that circumstance. As far as with breast cancer, you know, there it seems like there are more people now that are dealing with with certain types of cancers and more women that are dealing with breast cancer than ever before. How did you, how did you stay strong during that, that treatment process?
0: Well, I didn't have chemo, so that made it a little easier. And I think what made it strong was connecting with other women and talking to other women, not other doctors. I listen, but learning how to listen to the doctors came from my communication with other women. I have nine friends with breast cancer and that shouldn't be. And like you said, it's an epidemic. So, and they, and they're become, and they're younger and younger. It's like, um, you know, sometimes I see young girls look at me and they, they, they look at me as if, oh, you're older. That's why you have breast cancer. And the thing is, that's not true anymore. It's the cases are like, in their early 30s now, so I I try to talk about it on stage so that, you know, I don't mean to scare people, but I think people need to be realistic about, you know, their health and taking care of themselves, but that was probably the most, that was the best thing that came out of having breast cancer was the friends that I gained and the friends that um, earned their wings. As one of my friends put it, you know, you have friends that will lose their wings when you go through a traumatic experience, because, as I say, tragedy reveals character. And there are are people who will gain wings. And so uh, some of the strangers in my life were some of the best people, the kindness of strangers. And I, and those are the ones who became my friends. But the kindness of them became is just a beautiful thing.
1: And 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 I would like to say that I really appreciate your perspective. Yes, you did have this that happened to you, but even in bad things, we can find the positive, and and go through it as as positive as we possibly can. Uh, and, and particularly in in cancer or even other diseases, we do see that people who Remain positive, have better outcomes.
0: That's very. That's what I was told every single step of the way. I did a stand up for cancer on a plane. I did stand up on a plane. That probably was the only tragedy of that, but because <laughs> uh, it's really hard to perform for uh, audience on a plane. You only get like the first two rows really that can hear you, and hopefully they're not in the aisle seat. But um. Or the (laughs) window (laughs) seat. That was what I was told by a couple of the cancer survivors on the plane. It's so important to remain positive. I had one of the girls look at me and she said, you know, it doesn't matter. All my patients, the moment they lost faith or they got depressed, it's like that's when things took a turn for the worst. So I kept that in mind. You know, uh, what's fascinating is I did talk to a woman I did a a cancer benefit and I said that to a woman and she said, no, but it's okay to feel and cry. And I could sense that she didn't understand that those things can happen simultaneously. You can be positive and be sad at the same time. You can cry, you can feel everything and still have a positive attitude. Once you sink yourself into the sadness, it turns into depression, which is something I've never been.
1: Yeah, I I find myself a lot telling uh, clients that however you feel, it's okay to feel that way, but don't unpack and live there. And it is important for us to cry. It is important for us to feel sad. It is important for us to feel happy. It is important for us to feel positive. Uh, but in those those emotions that are negatively based, because you know you can cry when you're happy too, uh, it's not just exclusively bad. That we don't stay there. I also think uh, I have a I have a close friend who had breast cancer. It was quite quite comprehensive, and she ended up having to have cosmetic surgery and and that sort of thing. But I could never get her to understand that she wasn't a victim, that while yes, she did have this while she was going through it, she had it, but she is now a survivor. And she let cancer define who she was, and 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 we we can't do that. We you know we have to realize we are survivors, and we use this experience to help other people who are suffering. But I think that you know not even in cancer that we have uh, people who live as a victim, and they don't get any better because they don't move from the the victim mentality into I survived this. You know, I, I got through this. You know, some people say, well, how am I going to get over this? Or how am I going to get around this? Well, that's not how it works. You get through it. Right. Uh, we move through it together. That's right. And the, the importance of the word together, that you're never alone. As lonely as you may feel, you're never alone if you would seek somebody to be there with you. But I think we kind of get into that mentality of, of being a victim and being all alone. And we just, for lack of a better word, we feel comfortable there and we don't reach out and we don't look for help. But I think we would also be remiss in, at this point in time during the podcast to mention how important it is to be examined and get checkups regularly. Uh, to have mammograms, to have Pap smears, to have all of these things that that are required in order us for us to stay healthy and us to be on the front side of these issues.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, you know, just have having advocates, you know, go into the hospital with you. It, you know, you see it more now because I think women are starting to understand you don't have to do this alone. You know, if you take someone with you, they may listen much more than you do. When you're sitting in that room, you're you're in a state of shock in a sense. And so you may not be listening in the right way. And I found that out. I had a friend tell me, just record the doctors when they're talking to you, if I'm not here, so that you can listen back. And you know, I always ask for permission to record, of course. You don't want to just, you know, record people without their knowledge. But the thing is, is I would find after I left that office visit, a lot of times. I would ask questions they had already answered. So I was not listening. So it was important to keep recording because when I listened, I also found out information that helped me make the decisions about my treatment. Cause you do have control over how you need to be treated and how you, and the, you know, especially for black women, because that's an epidemic, black women, you know, how they feel and how they're treated. It's like, People don't believe they're paying for some reason. And I, you know, I never really understood that was a real thing until I went through this process. And so like arming myself with the information is the only power that I have. It was the only way that I could get through this in a good way. I mean, had I not, I may have done chemo.
1: I have a friend in Baton Rouge who is hematologist oncologist who specializes in metastatic cancer. And, and he has has told me quite often that, yes, it is it is the attitude a lot of times, but that the patient needs to be constantly reminded that they're the one that has the decision about the treatment. And a lot of times, especially when it gets into a point of thinking about quality of life, that family members tried to override the patient's wishes. And in your instance, uh, from what I understand, was not that severity. But did you ever encounter someone during your time that experienced that?
0: Well, I did. That's They actually helped me make my decision. So um, I have... Uh, there was my friend Ginny, who's my advocate, but I also have my friend Lois, my Irish friend Lois, who would go with me. And she goes, Marina, she goes, no, you can't have this doctor. She just graduated from college. Ask her her history. She may be good someday, but you can't work with her. Not now, no, run. So I know that was not the great Irish accent, but (laughs) I try. My face looks really funny when I do her to get it right. but she refuses to take tamoxifen. Tamoxifen is a uh, treatment, hormonal treatment that they give women who are perimenopausal and or pre. They're not going through menopause yet. And they usually give it to women after they've gone through radiation and chemotherapy, or if they just do re- radiation like I did, then they give them tamoxifen for treatment. She was just adamant about that pill, tamoxifen drove her insane. And she had to really tell the doctors, this is not what I want to take. I will not take. She switched off to another doctor. The doctor's still trying to get her to take it. She's like, she went to England to talk to this top woman who says, you know, tamoxifen will damage your body. So I listened to her and she told me, your only power is to be informed. Read these books. And so that's what I would do. And then I also had another friend who took tamoxifen who had the same reaction. One of the things I did though is I listened very carefully to both women and I noticed something. I did my own little survey and look study. Both women were in treatment for, were in AA and dealt with depression. And tamoxifen, typically they offer an antidepressant when you take tamoxifen. So I then understood these particular women, this is why they responded to it the way they did. I mean, that was just my own like, just common sense. It just made sense to me. So uh, I would still need to read more about that. But for me, I decided not to take it as well because I listened to their stories. I know I'm a performer. I care about quality of life. I'm a pretty positive person. I don't get depressed. I don't have. So I talked to my oncologist and I said to him, I really don't want to take this. I made sure that I knew What my Oncotype score is, which a lot of women don't know about, Oncotype scores for certain women's cancers, specifically mine, which is HER2 negative, estrogen, progesterone positive. There's an Oncotype test you can take that can tell you whether to take chemo or not take chemo and just do radiation. So usually when you get radiation, they ask you to then do the hormonal medicine, the tamoxifen. My Oncotype score was pretty low. It was like a 9 And so, and maybe lower than that. So I made a decision and I told my doctor, I'm not taking this drug. I talked to my uncle who is also a doctor and I asked him about that drug. And I said, if I don't take this, what will happen? And he explained to me, you know, some women don't respond to it. The dose they give women, it's very high. You could take it every other day. You could take it once a week. I just made a decision. I'm not taking it. I talked to my doctor about it. He listened to me and he said, okay, there is a study out. With a woman who did not take it for two years, she was fine. Then she took it. I said, So then you shouldn't have told me that because you know, for two years, I ain't taking that drug, right? (laughs) So now what he did was he suggested and referred me to an herbalist that he says, Hands down, we don't understand it, but he has a high success rate. He has shrunk women's tumors. I met him in Queens, a little Asian guy in a diner, you know, with bagels. And he tells me, You don't have to take that drug if you don't want to. He says, I will help you, but you have to be very, you know, clear on if you're not taking that drug, you have to do the work. So those are the type of things, yeah, that arm you against, that help you make smart decisions based on your diagnosis. Absolutely. So I hope that wasn't boring or too technical. Oh,
1: no, no, no. It's great. Are you currently seeing a therapist or in therapy for anything?
0: I was in therapy for years, especially after my sister passed. I stopped going because there's just no, there was, we were out of subjects, I think. But really, I made the decision. She was fine with it. Uh, I still talk to her every now and then. I call her up. I don't have anything I can't handle right now. That's what I knew. I said, with my sister's death, I knew I needed help. So when I know I need help, I go and get it. My therapist was very good. I used to go out to Brooklyn. I live in Harlem. I would travel like an, an hour out every Wednesday. I wish, as she put it, I would schlep out there <laughs> every Wednesday and go and see her. And she was the best. Yeah, I don't I don't really feel like I need that now.
1: So you were, I, I can only assume, with depression from the loss of your sister would be the main thing that you were dealing with in those sessions.
0: Well, she, I, didn't ha- I wasn't depressed, and that's where she made it clear. I was sad, and she wanted to say what, what you just said. She wanted to make sure I didn't hang in that pocket of sadness so that it turned into depression. Because I was still very, even during that time, uh, I would come back to New York, and people were like, Maria, this seems okay. And I was like, well, you know, that's because I'm in therapy you know, and I know how to take care of myself. My first therapist wasn't that great. Her name was Shirley. And she, she taught me how to take care of myself. I said, Shirley, you taught me how to take care of myself. So guess what, Shirley? I got to say goodbye to you. You know, and she said, that's fair. <laughs> 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 but my second therapist, amazing. Had her for years. I think I stopped maybe like two years ago. So I just didn't have, I just, nothing else. There was, yeah, I got to live my life now. Got gotcha. you. She gave me the tools.
1: Absolutely. And, th- and that's the most important thing is that we have not just the tools, but the access to the tools uh, to help us through. All right. Thank you for listening to Doc Talks today. I'm Doc Brian. As we go into the diagnosis part of this, you can find that episode on Patreon where we talk about the diagnosis that we actually think has been going on with our guest and discuss that diagnosis and potential treatment of how we would bring this all together to help cope with their mental illness. Maria, I appreciate you sharing your story with us, and uh, you'll join us with the second part of this podcast to discuss these things. Uh, Maria, where can we find you at?
0: Well, it's Marina.
1: I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm sorry.
0: It's my mother's name, so it's okay. You're saying her name, and she feels good about that.
1: Okay. (laughs) Marina.
0: Think a place where you dock boats.
1: Yes, yes, Marina.
0: <laughs> so you can find me, I'm on all social media, but just go to my website, marinafranklin.com.
1: All right, and you can find me at the.bryan.com on TikTok, underscore Brian, Instagram, brian, and there's a link at the bottom of my website as well for all of that social media. Feel free to follow us, uh, both of us, and thank you for listening to us, and hopefully you will Tune in next time and make sure to check out the second part of this episode of Doc Talks DX on Patreon. Uh, Doc Talks, of course, is a part of the Be Frank Network. And again, we thank you for listening. And again, thank you, Marina, for your help <laughs> and, and being willing to talk with us.
0: Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much. Thank Goodbye, you. everybody.